All right, guys, welcome back to Within Tolerance. This is episode 24, and this week we are joined with Troy from Rapid Design Solutions. He makes some very cool automatic vice, vice actuators, specifically for Kurt vices, but we've talked a little bit about he's working on some adapters to potentially make them compatible with orange vices, which I know Dylan and I are very familiar with, along with a lot of people out there listening. So we've got Troy on here. He's big into automation, UR, universal robots, all that fun stuff. So Troy, let's hear a little bit about your background. How did you get into machining and automation? Then we'll talk about some more very specific questions. Okay, cool. So first off, uh, Peyton and Dylan, uh, thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on within, within Tolerance here. Been picking up a few episodes of your podcast and I really like it. It's uh, very cool stuff. So thank you. And uh, as far as how I got into machining, so that was uh, kind of way back in the day now. It must have been around 2001. Um, I was just in high school um, looking for a part-time job and ended up getting a uh, machining job at a, just a local job shop. So I'd go in after school and actually before school a lot of times and was running, uh, you know, VMCs, a lot of vertical mills, production, a um, little bit of turn work, that type of thing. And right away when I got into the machine shop, it probably only took me about, you know, maybe a week or two to really just start to get excited about machining. Um, so I've always been kind of, uh, I would say, a little bit of a, a gearhead. I was into, you know, working on cars and motorcycles and that type of thing growing up. And so when I got into the machine shop and really just kind of started to understand the level of precision that you could achieve with, you know, CNCs, it, it kind of blew me away because it made everything, you know, just so much easier. And it's like a lot of things really clicked in terms of, you know, kind of the automotive and, you know, all the mechanical challenges that I'd worked on up to that point. I was just like, wow, if I had this machining knowledge, um, I could do so, so much, you know, I could do things a lot easier, more precise. And so I just became fascinated with it and totally got involved with it. And I kind of went to the boss right away. It was a smaller shop at that time. And it's like, hey, I'm, I'm totally into this. So, you know, whatever we can do or whatever I can do to learn, I'd really like to do that. And so kind of... Uh, Said, okay, that, that sounds cool. And then just gave me, it really gave me a lot of opportunity and really good training on the job. So almost all of my training for machining has been on the job. And back then it was, it was kind of interesting actually, because we were running, uh, I want to say they had like, maybe like four vertical mills on, you know, a couple lathes. When I started out working there and uh, basically everything was hand programmed as we called it, which, you know, just means you're kind of sitting down there at the machine, like banging out G code um, by hand. And so it was kind of interesting in that regard. Like it's not really the way to do it. Right. I mean, you guys, you guys know that you're in the cam and all that, 
but uh, it gave me a great opportunity to really learn kind of how to think on the terms of programming and machining and kind of picked up a little bit of a skill with, you know, doing some, a lot of hand programming and, you know, subprograms and nesting and that type of thing, which has helped me out a lot later, but I, I feel like that's something that you don't get a lot of uh, these days because CAM is so prevalent and for good reason. But just being able to have that experience to kind of uh, go from doing really basic stuff and even uh, doing a lot of hand programming on some 3D shapes, um, which is, you know, laborious to say the least. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so we, we did a lot of that. And then uh, after I'd been there a while, um, we kind of started looking into, you know, some various CAM softwares and I ended up, you know, being the programmer. So I got into that and, you know, did master CAM training and SolidWorks and all that type of thing. And really had a lot of uh, fun and opportunity just growing with that job shop. So they were a lot bigger when I left and it was like, yeah, the whole thing was just a super cool experience. And then um, I think who, who's mentioning on the other podcast about burning bridges or not burning them? Was that, was that you, Dylan? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Point. So I like that, that kind of clicked with me too, because I was just like, yeah. Um, so th this shop is, you know, one of our biggest customers now, and <laughs> we still have a great relationship and do a ton of stuff with them. Um, so yeah, and that was actually the only machine shop that I worked at other than, you know, uh, one of my close friends has a small machine shop in his garage with a couple actually really nice Lazaks. And, you know, I go up there and help him out, you know, from time to time. But other than that, I spent about, uh, I would say almost 10 years uh, in that job shop and then ended up uh, getting hired by one of our customers to go into mechanical design. Uh, so I, I'd been doing, you know, really working closely with this customer and this is probably the type of thing that you guys run into quite often where um, you're working, you know, maybe with a, a mechanical engineer at a company and they're just like prototyping and trying to get stuff done and, you know, get it done quick and maybe some intricate like assemblies and snaps and that type of thing. And you run into a situation where like, you're not really sure if it's going to work or they're not. So you kind of get this back and forth dialogue and, you know, okay, this is what we're trying to do. Is it machinable? Um, and so a lot of back and forth on that. And so I started handling a lot of that. And eventually one of these companies uh, that we're doing that for, uh, I just got a job offer from them saying, hey, uh, you know, you've been doing a lot of this. Uh, do you want to just come in house as part of our design team and work on the same type of thing? So, uh, that was at that point, and actually it's a really hard decision because I just love working in that machine shop so much that, um, but I did end up moving on and, uh, you know, went, went to the, it was a large company and, uh, did design there for probably, I guess it was about a year. And then, uh, honestly it was, that again was a super cool experience, but it was a little bit. Uh, I don't know, I would say corporate maybe. Mm -hmm. So 
it was, it was just a really big company and it was kind of hard to, um, you know, I guess move quickly within that company. Things were just, you know, they moved at a certain pace and there were certain procedures. So I ended up moving on from that after about a year. And at that point, that, that is when I went out on my own. And, uh, at the, at the point that I went out on my own, I started out, uh, basically just, you know, set up in a small office kind of downtown. Uh, I, you know, I bought SolidWorks and CamWorks at that time and, uh, started doing contract design and a little bit of contract CAM programming. And so, um, again, from the first uh, machine shop that I'd worked at, I happen to have a lot of contacts, uh, within the consumer electronics test industry, um, and, uh, kind of started working with those people, uh, and ended up taking over mechanical design for a couple of those companies. Um, so we were designing a lot of custom test fixtures for testing, uh, laptops, tablets, and phones. So basically trying to repeat by human interactions and gestures uh, with these devices, but doing it, you know, in an automated, mechanical, repeatable fashion. And so uh, I was really into that. And actually, we, we still are into that quite a bit. Um, but after doing that for about a year, I, I realized that, you know, I'd get these designs done and they'd be, I'd be really excited about them and it's really cool and all that. But then I'd like, you know, try to send it out to get the stuff built at local machine shops. And like the lead time was just, it wasn't always quite there. And, you know, occasionally there's like small things on these types of designs that you want to tweak a little bit and maybe, maybe even have a, like a gray area and you're like, okay, I'm not quite sure about this fit, you know, should we make a slip by a thou or, you know, a couple of tenths, right? And so it's really hard to do those types of tweaks on the fly if you don't have basically in-house machining. Um, so then at that point we did, you know, move into a warehouse and ended up, you know, buying a CNC mill and then added a CNC lathe not long after and hired a couple guys and um, really started doing a lot of custom automation work, uh, mainly just trying to build our own, you know, test fixtures and the own, our own, the designs that I was working on, um, building those in house, which was super fun and, uh, saves a ton of time. And in my mind, it kind of closes the loop on like the whole design cycle. And, uh, I, th I think you guys probably know kind of what I'm talking about. Like I'm sure Peyton, when you design a mold for, you know, a new injection molded part, like basically you come up with the design first and then you're like, okay, what's my process going to look like to finish this out. And when you can just do that, start to finish in house, um, I don't know, like the way it closes the loop is just pretty cool. Um, in terms of getting immediate feedback and it just makes it really quick, really. So, yeah, that's always a lot of fun. That whole process, the iterative design process is, I think we've talked about it here actually a couple of times that we both really enjoy that. And that, I mean, that really is what got me more heavily into machining. Like I 
started doing design work and stuff in school and, and the, yeah, I love being able to make something, realize I don't like it, change it, make it again, all of that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool. And I think actually, I guess, so like Dylan, it sounds like you kind of got into that when you're in school and I actually think like where I probably really got into that and like got excited about it first was in back in the, when I was working at the, the job shop doing uh, fixture design, right? So you're going to make like, you know, a custom tombstone with all these clamps and you got to clear all these ops and or all these tools for, you know, different ops. So that was, uh, I think that's actually what got me fascinated with it initially. And it's um, kind of in the, in the job shop environment, uh, it seems like you, I don't know. I don't know if it's this way for you guys, but for me back then, it was like, you really just had to get stuff right the first time. Like, um, I don't know, the job would be bid for, you know, X minutes or hours of setup time. And so that was pretty much like, okay, you're gonna design this, you know, fourth axis tombstone fixture that holds these raw casting and locates off these features for, you know, three or four ops. And it's, you know, it's gonna take, you know, six hours plus a day and a half to build it. And it's just gonna work, right? And because that's basically what the job's bid for. So, right. Yeah, oh yeah, totally. It does just need to work. And, um, and I think you can do that, right. When you have your own, um, you know, you have access to all the hardware and the machine tools to make that happen. Um, so kind of back to the point about where I really got interested in that, I think it did start out machining. And so I think that a lot of people who start out in machining, and like move into design, like it kind of gives you a really good handle on the design process for, you know, certain types of mechanical parts and assemblies. So it's kind of a cool way to get into it. Oh, totally. Well, and it's, it's helpful for anybody else who ever looks at your designs. Like you can tell who, you know, when you, you get a print across your desk, you can tell which engineers have touched a bridge port before and which ones have never thought about making anything ever you know it's it's pretty clear by the tolerances and the way that you know the corner radii and things like that yeah totally yeah if you if you have like you know like a a, a corner that's two inches tall and you, know, you have like a, a 16th radius in there you're like oh man like <laughs> i don't either like this is going to be really expensive or i'm just going to have to go back to them and like ask them if you know, go a little bigger there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I've gotten stuff before that was tolerance out to the four decimal place. And, it, you know, I'm scratching my head trying to put together tools to do it and yada, yada, yada. And then I talk to the engineer and they're like, oh, that's just a spacer. Just throw whatever drill is close through that hole. And it's like, <laughs> come on, like, really? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, I'm sure we've all been there. And sometimes that's a fine line, right? Like, you know, it probably doesn't really matter, but does your customer, um, you know, so do, do they want you to just like make the decision to say, okay, I see what he's trying to do here. It doesn't really matter. We're going to, you know, not hold this, you know, corner radius to plus or minus five tenths, or 
to, to would they rather have us basically call them you know with a list of things and say hey um, this is kind of what we see do you really want this um, and sometimes it's hard to know like if you're going too far there so I think a lot of shops like you just kind of have to assume that it you know it really needs to meet basically whatever the print has on it um, and the downside of that is it tends to just add cost to the process that you know might not need to be there totally totally so what specifically you said you kind of stepped into automation because of these test fixtures but yeah. i mean part of your backstory I, I don't think we've brought it up really is that you are I'm not quite sure what your role is with UR, but I know that you're an integrator for them or something along those lines. So how did you get into that? And like, what 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 is your role with UR? Yeah, yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, I and Peyton knows this because you know we've talked at his shop a couple times, and I get really excited about machines, so I tend to you know go off on those tangents. But um, totally back to the original question about how I got into automation specifically. So it, it did have to do with um, doing the test equipment. So, you know, that was like, I don't know, I want to say like at least uh, eight years ago that I started getting into that. So that was before Universal Robots was even around. And at that time, we were doing a lot of like custom test equipment. You know, so you're, you're talking like you take a, a servo motor and a ball screw and start making things move around, right? And as you know, six-axis robots, you know, sort of becoming well. Actually, as the price of them sort of coming down, and as more of our customers started getting into, uh, you know, augmented reality, AR, VR, um, there was a need for more of these six-axis type movements um, for testing, you know, like the glasses and goggles and that type of thing, um, because we're doing like test case scenarios. Um, so you're trying to simulate how a human is going to be using, you know, these devices. So that was when we first got into using six-axis robots and uh, started out in, in the test world doing a lot with Epson robots. And eventually, um, again, as I mentioned, the price of those robots has continued to fall. And so um, I happen to have uh, access to basically a surplus Epson robot that was almost brand new and was just hanging out at our shop one day. And I'd been talking to one of our customers about, you know, automating the high production job that they had. So anyway, I took this, I said, well, hey, um, you know, there's maybe a lot of questions here about what it's going to take to actually automate uh, your machine tending job. So what if I have this robot like hanging out here? I'd kind of like to use it, but we don't really do production machining here. It's mainly prototyping. So I said, hey, uh, what if I just do this job for you? Like, you know, we'll, you can sub it out to us and we will set it up with our robot. We'll get it running, show you exactly how we do it in our CNC. And then uh, you guys can check it out and just, you know, decide if this is something that's good for you. So, Anyway, uh, we did that. They said, okay, cool. So we did that and we got that, we got our machine running and I'll get back to that in a little while because that's like some, that involves a backstory on like our CNC vice actuators and a couple other products. But in any case, we got it running with the Epson, which is an industrial robot. It's not a collaborative 
that basically means you have to have like, uh, you know, either a lifeguard or a safety mat or a cage around the robot. And, uh, and yeah, so I got it going with the Epson and, you know, our customer came in and checked it out and we're like, Hey, like, this is great. Um, we want to do this, but then they were concerned about, you know, the safety requirements. So, um, I ended up, uh, you know, quoting a UR to them and that was the first UR that I basically quoted and installed because um, they've been a little bit new and before uh, they came out with the, what's called the E-Series, which I, I know you guys know about, um, which is a little more precise and has integrated force torque sensing. Like I wasn't quite as comfortable using them for multi-out machine tending just because of, um, you know, depends on the mix of parts you have, right? But sometimes if you're doing ops one, two, and three, all with the same robot, there's like some really precise locating that you need to do. But anyhow, when the, when the E-Series came out, uh, my customer was like, hey, like, um, we don't want an industrial, we want a UR5E. Um, it's precise, it's safe, like, let's just go with this. So I went ahead and did the, the training with UR on that and uh, installed the robot and, you know, did some follow-on training to become a UR <coughs> CSI, which is a certified systems integrator for UR. So now we basically are working closely with Universal Robots and Olympus Controls, who is the, you know, the big universal distributor in our area. And, um, we just, you know, are following up on a lot of leads and really just trying to help people, especially job shops. Um, that's pretty much what we're focused on. Um, help machine shops that are interested in machine tending, you know, with cobots. Um, help them figure out what it takes to get up and going. And also we do turnkey stuff, right? So if someone's like, hey, um, I know we want to do this, but not really sure. Uh, exactly what it's going to take. Uh, can you guys just handle the first one and train us and then we'll, you know, adapt it for the next setup and that type of thing. So that's sort of to become a service that we offer um, in addition to the other products that we developed along the way uh, with this here. So that, so that is the relationship with Universal Robots and Olympus Controls that uh, uh, I think Peyton knows about that because uh, he's been down to Olympus, and, you know, done the demos. And that is right. how we're working together with him. Yeah, that's how you ended up meeting, right? Yeah, actually, totally. And that was kind of an interesting story. Um, <laughs> Peyton, did you want to, like, uh, chime in on that? Because I, I didn't know about, um, you know, Brick Tactical, really, before I met you down there. And I don't think that that you know, we had never really been in contact, but then it, it just kind of happened coincidentally that we sort of knew, knew about each other. Yeah, because at first it was Danny Rudolph that had posted about your vice actuator on Instagram. And I think Danny or Dylan, t like, sent me that post and we were both talking about it. And then it just so happened to, like, the next couple weeks, I went down to Olympus to look at URs and your name got brought up and the whole rapid design solution got brought up. And I was like, wait a minute, I recognize that. And we just kind of started talking and long story short, um, 
we just ended up talking even more than you came out and checked out my shop. And now we're, I'm trying to help you with that uh, adapter for the orange vice for your product. So it just kind of total small worlds really. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was really cool. Um, just the way all that, all that kind of happened. So yeah, it was a small world and it's, it's neat. And as you mentioned, Peyton, uh, since then I've, you know, stopped by and checked out your operation and um, heard both of you guys talk about, you know, the Orange Vice products a lot. And so I've always been a Kirk guy, um, just kind of by, basically by default, which I don't know, I think tons of shops are that way, right? Like those blue vices with the Kirk logo on them, they're just like, that's what you see. Um, so, and so that's what we had, you know, here at our shop. And so kind of going back a little bit to the backstory on those vice actuators for that very first job that we were setting up and, you know, trying to get running for a customer to, to demo the robot. Um, we, we basically took the approach of just setting it up conventionally, right? So they're, they're small parts about the size of, you know, a quarter with, you know, height about, you know, quarter inch or something. And we're doing them conventionally and, you know, three ops, three Kirk vices side by side and uh, running them in strips of six at a time and then you just flip them, you know, op one, two, and three. And they get, they got cut apart in the last op. So, you know, be, before in op one and two, you're, you're not handling six parts. You're just, you know, handling a strip at a time, which is kind of nice. But anyway, so the, we're like, okay, so we have it running now. It runs good. They're pretty tight tolerance parts. Like the, uh, the Z height in the last op needed to be within, uh, I think our print gives us like plus or minus nine tenths, I want to say, but because of like the thermal cycles on the machine and a few other things, like we have to actually, our actual locating needs to be quite a bit closer than that. So anyhow, we're like, okay, we got it. We got it running good. So do we really want to change our method to allow a robot, you know, to run these? And I'm like, okay, like how can we just keep what we're using and add the robot. And so that's when I started really thinking about, you know, the vice actuator thing. And I tried like, uh, actually I was like, well, what about just like an air gun? You know, they have, uh, what are they called? I think they're like called like butterfly impact wrenches for, you know, mechanics to use. And so just this little, really small impact wrench and like, Hey, maybe we can just have the robot control an impact wrench for each vice, right? And so we kind of tried that out, but it was sort of, um, I don't know, it's not like, it's not very repeatable. And it's kind of like, it's kind of intense for a vice, like a precision vice. Like, you don't really want to be, you know, hammering away on it with this impact wrench. Right. So, yeah. I think Kurt specifically says not to use impacts. So, yeah. Yeah. Which, which makes a lot of sense. There's all sorts of reasons, but like I said, we're just trying stuff. So then um, I'm like, okay, well, what's something repeatable that we could use? So I just kind of sat down and um, you know, opened up SolidWorks and really just started thinking about that. And I'd seen these uh, rotary actuators for like HVAC systems, you know, for uh, flipping uh, ductwork, like flaps open and close. Like 
And those are pretty simple, you know, they're like a rack and pivot system. And so um, I said, well, maybe we can use that. So anyhow, uh, came up, ended up coming up with the CNC actuator, vice actuator design. And we just built a few, uh, threw them on our machine. And the first revision, uh, actually, we're still running out there with the very first one we ever built, which wasn't even plated or anything. We just, you know, put it in there with the bare aluminum and started running the job. And they were great. So um, a few people who came by to see it, they're like, hey, this is really cool. Like, uh, you guys should, you know, get these things out there a little bit. I think with robots and cobots, especially a lot of people are going to start going this route. So um, at that point, we, you know, actually, I didn't redesign uh, from the first revision because I wanted to get the, uh, the force up a little bit on them. So there's kind of like, uh, well, what, what do you guys run for, like, shop air pressure at your facilities? Um, we just run what goes the the machine, which I think is 110 PSI. Yeah. And then we step it down at the machine. Yeah, totally. So, and, and that was kind of, our, our standard was a little bit higher. Um, I think our compressor, like, just puts out, like, 110. 35 or 40. Um, so I kind of sized the system for that, but the the very first revision, you know, you could only put out about like 35 foot pounds of torque, which is actually quite a bit um, if you're tightening a vice. Um, but I, I knew that a lot of users are probably going to be like 110 or 100 PSI shop there. So anyhow, that kind of drove the, you know, the second revision there and ended up coming out with that higher torque model. Uh, a little bit more recently, but yeah, since then, uh, you know, we got it on our website and the, the sales have been picking up and it's uh, turning into a, a pretty successful product for us that we're, you know, having a lot of fun with. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm just looking over the uh, website right now, looking at your print of it and all that stuff, all your notes. Yes. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, I will say for playing with it, it really does just like slap on there and it's like way easy to install. So does it just uh, go until it torques out or do, do you set end stops on how far you want it to travel or how does that work? Yeah, so uh, basically um, just to go through the initial setup, you you know, you have your vice that's just operating normally and, you know, you tighten your vice to whatever torque that you're using and then you open your vice to half of a turn and you're going to put the vice actuator in the full open position and then it clips on the front of your vice and gets secured on there with, uh, you know, magnets axially and then uh, rotationally with some blocks that, you know, are custom fit to your vice. Um, well, if you have a curve, they're universal, but uh, as Peyton knows, we're, we're currently working on the orange system, and there will be a, a custom block specifically for the orange vice um, to, you know, not disallow rotation, basically. So anyhow, you open the actuator uh, to its full open position, then put it on the vice, and then you basically just apply air pressure to the other uh, port and it closes the actuator 
and it just goes until it tightens out. Um, I think as you mentioned, Dylan, so it goes as tight as it can until it stops, right? And basically what you need to do on the pressure side of that vice actuator is use an inline regulator. And so that is how you control your closing torque. And so, for example, if you were to apply, you know, like 100 PSI of pressure um, to the tightening side of that vice actuator, it would produce, uh, I, I think the math is uh, 0.37 foot-pounds per PSI. So it produced like 37 foot-pounds of torque um, on the tightening side. And then it's, of course, it's only going to go until it, you know, torques out. And then when you tell it to open, you just apply air pressure to the other port and it goes all the way until it is full open, right? Because that's basically what you did when you set it up initially by having it in the open position when you put it on the vise. Um, so that is how that is controlled. Gotcha. That sounds pretty, pretty dead easy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. I think the uh, the one caveat that we've noticed with that, and this is actually, it's kind of built into the design, but uh, basically the actuator puts out about, uh, I think we respect 225 degrees of rotation, but it's actually a little more. But in any case, um, if you have like a really, a part that, like say your stock varies by like, you know, 30 or 40 thou. Um, your vice closing point can also vary by quite a bit. So it can make it a little bit of a challenge if you're trying to grab a lot of different size stocks or parts um, using the same setup. Of course, it's easy to reconfigure for a different size opening, but that's basically what you get is, you know, generally what a typical operator does is about a half turn and that's what we designed these things to work within. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, it, yeah, like you said, it would handle 80, 90% of use cases. Yeah. So, Troy, I know we've talked about this, me and you, but it's really interesting to hear your take because you're, you know, directly connected to UR and then having your own vice actuators and whatnot. So, I'm curious to see. Um, we have a couple questions here, but one of them is how can small shops like us implement automation with high mix, low volume work? Because I know, for example, Dylan's a great case where, I mean, he'll get 12 part numbers and they only want one or two of each. Um, I guess, what's your sales pitch and how would he go about automating if he wanted to, or is there even a way he could? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's one that, um, comes up quite a bit, and I think I want to say that I have two answers to that. Um, and I would say that the first answer is that I don't know that it pays to automate like five or ten parts. Um, it, it really kind of depends on the runtime of the part, right? And it's pretty easy to teach these robots to you know change a part in your CNC, but if you're talking like you know. Uh, 10 minute cycle and you got five parts, that's like 50 minutes. Um, I don't know if you're really going to see much benefit from, you know, setting up a robot to run those. Um, and we've, we've gone over this a lot, I think Peyton, you and I, um, but just to 
kind of go into a little bit more detail, maybe about some of the ideas that we've talked about. And uh, I don't want to uh, steal your thunder because this was actually um, the thing that you were the most excited about, I think initially, and maybe still are. But um, going back to the palette idea, so if you really have, you know, just that's, you know, few parts at a time that you're running, um, there, there is the idea, and this isn't a brand new idea either, but I think uh, the new robots give you a lot of options with this. There's basically the idea to set up, you know, a bunch of different palettes and maybe have them in like some kind of grid layout that the robot can easily find. And so now you just set up, okay, I got my one by two by six stock in palette one, and you set up all these palettes and you know get the programs and the tools in there and then you just have the robot uh, load a pallet in the machine tell the machine what program to run and the machine runs it and when it's done the uh you know the mill will kick back a handshake signal that says okay i'm done ready for the next one and then you load the next you know pallet which is and tell it to run a different program right so you're able to take those onesie twosie type prototype jobs and Really, I think the goal to that is getting some unmanned time. So you get it all programmed when you're there, you set up all the tools, and then in a perfect world, you just you know tell the robot, okay, run these six pallets with these six programs and uh, shoot me a text if something goes wrong, right? And it does it. Um, so I think that's one approach, and ideally in that situation, you can have at least like 10 hours of runtime unmanned. So for like a one-man shop, that's really going to increase your, your throughput and your productivity. Um, it's basically like hiring a night shift operator to just you know run your machine all night. Um, so I think that's one method of doing it. Um, and then, and the new UR16E is going to be a really good one for that type of uh, system because it does have that increased payload. So 16 kilograms, I want to say that's like 35 pounds. So you you would actually have the payload to run some pretty good sized pallets um, with that new robot. Um, but then, so so I think that's one method. The other one that I honestly, the method I've been focusing on more, um, I wouldn't really say it lends itself well to like five and 10 part runs. And I haven't quite found like the minimum threshold for it um, that totally makes sense, but uh, I'll just throw it out there. So what we do and we're trying to do more of is say we got a part or a job that's gonna run for you know, eight hours, maybe it's 50 parts or whatever cycle time that is. And anyway, if if it's kind of a simple job, um, a lot of jobs, right, they're pretty easy to set up if you're just doing one part flow. Um, so you just got, maybe you're gripping on excess material and a vice and off one, and then you're just flipping it over and setting it on parallels against a stop and off two, and then you take it out and it's done. So, maybe you got eight or 10 hours of runtime with that job. Well, our idea is, okay, instead of like a lot of traditional machining approach would say, 
okay, you need to do multiples of that part. You need to fill your table up. You need to really get your unmanned time high, get a lot of spindle time, don't waste tool changes, that type of thing. Um, but the idea that we've been playing with a lot is like, okay, just get the job set up as quick as you can. Um, even though you're making 50 of them, just pretend it's a one, you know, it's a one part setup, just get it going and then teach the robot to load your stock and flip it from op one to op two and then remove it. And basically how quickly can you set up that robot to do that really simple, you know, two op flow and get it to run reliably. And so I think that's the other approach because if you basically uh, get it to just, you know, maybe you spend a few hours setting the job up, one or two hours making sure the robot gripper is in there and everything's good. And then if you can put it running and just go home and it runs 10, 12 hours and the parts are done in the morning, like I think at that point, um, it's, it's actually a pretty good value. Um, so that's kind of the approach we've been taking. And that's where I think our vice actuators and material feeders shoe and our mobile robot stand kind of come into play. You can kind of see the, I guess, the philosophy that we're building around there with our approach. Um, so I hope that I answered your question there, uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, like I said, I'm not sure I can give one answer, but maybe it's like, you know, two or three different answers to, to that question. Yeah, there's definitely more than one one way to skin that cat, but uh, I think those are great. Those are some great answers. So then, let's see. We've got a question from Pantech Pantechnicon Design. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so I goes, stumbled over it last time, so <laughs> yeah. I remember it this time. Um, All right. So he says, it's a big topic, but I'm interested to hear his thoughts on the process reliability aspect of automation. In order to automate successfully, I would like to think that you also need to be implementing some sort of extra chip management, tool life management, tool breakage detection, possibly extra sensors like coolant levels, etc. cetera, um, would be interesting in his comments on often overlooked aspects of implementing robot automation. And this might be a good way you could maybe talk about that one job where you were running 2,000 parts. I don't know if you did any of those things that he just mentioned with that job. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so that that is, a, that is like a huge thing with automation, right? So, and we, of course, have that same question because um, you don't want to, like, you know, it's really cool if your robot can run all weekend, but... Not so cool if you come in and 21 tools are snapped and it's still just like running, you know, <laughs> running parts that look like they're just welded by your, your solid holders, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's like the worst case scenario, but it is worth thinking about. And so there's, again, with that, there's a number of different approaches you can take. And I would say there's different levels of, um, risk management that you can take with that. And so specifically on the, that job that we were running last week that I told you about Peyton, we, uh, on that one, we're not using breakage detection, uh, and we're not using, uh, any sort of 
uh, in-process measurement on the robot side. So with that one, our key has been, um, and so I'll just describe basically how the job runs and we can talk about things you can add to that. But um, so we come in in the morning and the robot is running. It has like a bucket of parts that are done that it's just, you know, plunking out. So the very first thing we do is take the bucket of parts, we remove it, we get like the last, you know, six parts that the machine has ran and we check those and make sure we check them on the criticals, make sure that everything's in print. And then we're going to be emptying the, you know, the chip, the chips out. Uh, our machine has a conveyor. I think if you're going to automate with a robot, that's, it's like almost a must to have a chip conveyor or, you know, an auger. Um, I don't really see, I don't know. I don't see a lot of machines that can run for more than like six, seven hours without, you know, something to, you know, get the chips out of there just so the coolant doesn't make a huge lake inside the machine. Like you just got to keep that coolant flowing. Um, so, and we run our chip conveyor programmatically just from within the CNC program. So, you know, it turns it on for, you know, X minutes per cycle. Um, so that's one thing we do. And then, so we're basically, we're just removing the chips from the garbage can, uh, that our auger is feeding into, and then we're topping it off on coolant in the morning and just giving the parts a thorough in process inspection. And then we just keep keep letting it run and we were talking about how those parts have some tight tolerances um and the way we get around that is we just got our process with the robot really dialed in so it's able to load the parts repeatedly and it does that by basically working with the vice actuator so as we're tightening uh, the part the robot is actually forcing the part down at the same time to like flatten it out and then um, we actually added like a backup step uh, within the CNC and it's, it's basically dead program time, but this is, it's kind of a, I don't know, an off the wall trick that I picked up by accident. Um, but basically you have like a strip of parts, um, let's say an off two or three that have warped a little bit because that's just what they do when you grip on excess and, you know, machine around the part. So you got the strip that's warped and you got to push them flat so they're all, you know, can hold C height in the final op. And so what we do is we use the force of the robot to push them flat while we're tightening. But then the very first thing the machine does when it gets to that operation is we come out with uh, like a, a big high-speed steel spotter, you know, like a half inch. And just kind of in the extra material, it's not even really for a hole. We just run that spotter down into the parts kind of quick. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you use high-speed spotters, you know what I'm talking about. It's like that, that sound. And it actually um, puts a lot of force down on each part. And so if there was any problem with the robot loading or anything, it'll get like that last few tenths out of the warp, out of the parts. And so, that's the um, thing we've been doing to make sure that they're gonna run with intolerance. Um, and then the other thing we do is we keep a constant temp. So we have to watch the machine. It doesn't compensate on its own for temperature. 
So whatever heat the shop is going to get up to during the day, we just set our thermometer or our thermostat and just leave it constant. So really what we found as long as the, the robot and the machine uh, just stay up to temp and get warmed up and are running good, there's like no reason they're going to stop running good. So um, it's, it's actually, it's been working really well. And then uh, I'm trying to think of what other measures we take. So the robot at each stage, um, it has feedback. And that's kind of an important thing when you're integrating a robot. Um, and if you think about it from a CNC perspective, it's, it's really no different. But you'll find like a, you know, CNC, uh, say a tool changer, like a sidearm tool changer. Usually there's like, uh, you know, a pneumatic solenoid that fires to like kick the pot down and then, you know, a motor runs to move the arm and all that stuff. Well, at each one of those steps, there is feedback. So generally the CNC, if it doesn't get like feedback from a switch, it says, okay, you set arm down. Now did the pot arm actually go down? If it doesn't get that feedback, it's just going to like either alarm out or just sit there and wait forever. And so it won't let the next thing happen until it knows, you know, the thing it commanded worked. So we try to take the same approach when we're setting up a job with a robot. So if we're using vacuum to like pick up stock, we'll go over to our stock shoot, uh, you know, tell the robot to vacuum the part. And then we'll tell it to wait until it achieves X amount of vacuum. And, and we have a vacuum sensor that reads that. And now if it didn't achieve that vacuum, then we say, okay, alarm out, stop, don't run the machine. Um, and we do that same thing when we're loading and, and unloading. So at any point in the, in the process, when the robot is loading the CNC, we're just making sure that we have as many uh, safeguards and checks in, in place as possible. And we've had great luck with that because we have had some things mess up, like, you know, a piece of stock is, you know, maybe it has some big scratches. So, you know, the vacuum end effector like drops it in the machine vise and it's like in there sideways. And what we've had is our vice actuators have a sensor on them that um, if you're using a robot, you like, you really want to tie that back to the robot. And so then when the robot says, okay, open vice or close vice, it's going to wait for sensor feedback. And if it doesn't see that, um, it's going to it's just going to stop and say, Hey, I have a problem. And then at that point, the robot is not going to, you know, push go on the CNC. So either you can make it try it again, you know, for X number of tries, or you could just say, we don't know what this problem is. Just stop. Don't run the CNC. Um, you know, you're going to lose a night of operation, but at least you're not going to be running a huge pile of unknown parts that might be bad. Um, so that's been our approach um, on that job specifically, and it's worked out really good. What we found is that our scrap rate with the robot is actually significantly lower than with an operator because the operator kind of had to like, you know, put the parts in there and load them up against a stop just right and hit them down. And the robot just tends to be so much more consistent and you can just get things up to temp. You don't deal with the warm up cycle. And so you just run and run. And uh, so that's been really good. But 
Um, if the job were something that needed to have, like maybe some more documented in-process inspection, or even just for, uh, you know, kind of a, we feel good about this, uh, this is our, you know, this is all the risk we want to take. Um, at that point, there's quite a few options, um, starting out basically with really simple things like uh, you can have, uh, maybe there's one tight dimension on the part. So you could use like a, a key ends, uh, you know, laser distance measurement tool and the robot just, you know, presents each part to the, to the measuring unit after it takes it out of the CNC and you could just gauge, okay, that's the one dimension that I know if that dimension's good, the part's fine. And then you're just going to pass or fail on that. And the robot program would tell, um, you tell the robot what to do at that point, right? If you get like five fails in a row, stop or whatever the case may be. And then, so that's kind of like a really basic thing. But the thing that I think I was talking about with you, Peyton, was um, did, did you get like the Haas uh, probing kit? With I your did DM2? not. Okay. Um, so there is that kit. And um, I can't for some reason, I thought we chatted about that, and I can't remember what the sticker price was on that probing kit, but it was basically, I remember thinking it was pretty cost effective. And I think that uh, if you're trying to get more involved, I would just use the machine to do the probing and the in-process inspection. I think that is like a really good way to make sure your parts are good. Um, there, there are a lot of camera options available but when we're talking about more like collaborative robots and job shops, I think I try to keep things as simple as possible. And so using a camera for pick and place is not that hard and using them for inspection is not even that hard, but there are a lot of, there's a bit more setup you have to do to do accurate gauging. Um, so I think that the, I guess the second part to my answer would be, if you have to get to that next level, um, get a machine that has probing. I think that's the best way to do it. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, that, that wasn't the reason that we just got our new machine with probing, but it was certainly in the back of our minds, you know, if we wanted to automate in, in the future. Yeah, totally. So what do you see as like the biggest mistake or series of mistakes that shops do in trying to automate and like, what are some of the cases you can bring up? Like, have you seen anything really bad that you've kind of had to come in and kind of clean up the mess or? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that probably the biggest uh, things that I've seen that are mistakes are um, maybe like not using the right gripper. So there's a lot of grippers out there that, you know, have like a wide travel range and maybe they use like, um, some rubber fingers and that type of thing. And there's nothing wrong with those for certain operations, but um, if you're going to like try to wiggle apart into say like a really tightly locating machining fixture, you just really need to make sure that your gripper is going to be up to the task. So if you're using like an electric gripper like that, you probably don't want to use like the little rubber fingers, you know, some custom Machine fingers, similar to CNC soft jaws, are going to be like a really good way to do that. Um, so you can actually locate the part well and grip on it really good as you're like wiggling it into something. Um, 
so I think that's one spot. And then also, um, I guess the other um, big thing I see is just operator training. Um, so if you got this CNC mill running with a robot and your night shift guy like notices the robots, you know, maybe it's like out of stock or something. Um, so it's just sitting there. He's like, oh, okay. So he knows he has to get the machine running and somebody forgot to, you know, replenish the stock for the robot. So he goes over there and loads it up and then he's got to like push go. Well, if, if he's not like trained on that a little bit, um, you know, it might not go so well just in terms of, <laughs> I guess I've seen some situations where, you know, you're looking at like the robot starts out in kind of like a really bad position and then it has to like swing through and maybe bumps into something and, and it like, it stops itself and alarms out because it's safe. But at that point, it's just kind of, um, maybe like not something that is going to run that night. So then it gets put, put off a little bit and somebody has to kind of figure out where it is in the morning. And I guess it's probably kind of an obvious thing, but that's probably the thing I've seen the most. It's just like, um, probably just really basic, uh, startup type tasks, right? It'd be the equivalent of like, you're starting up your CNC in the morning, uh, you got to home it out and warm it up, right? If somebody doesn't know that, like, are they going to get the job running right? If, you know, maybe they got to home it, warm it, and load the right program and use the right vice. So j just kind of the basic stuff. And then I guess the other thing I would say um, I've seen a bit of is either over-sensing or under-sensing. Um, and I, I would uh, confess to over-sensing um, in an application that I did in which uh, there were some uh, pneumatic doors that we put on a CNC and we use open switches for them and closed switches, which is a really good idea. So the robot knows if the door is actually open or closed, but basically um, there was a little bit of inconsistency. And so we didn't quite have the sensor set, right? So over time, you know, the sensor setting kind of drifted and so the customer was having problems with, you know, like the door would be open or it would be closed, but the robot didn't know it was. So like, uh, then it just sat there and, you know, they lost the whole night because of that. Right. So right. All right. A, a few of those types of issues and then under sensing would be like, you don't have any door sensors and the robot tries to, you know, shove through the door or maybe the <laughs> robots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> really bad right um or maybe the robot's like trying to open the door and the door's getting inconsistent so it's alarming out and you know th so i'd say there's those types of things too to watch out for and then um consistency i think um i've seen repeatability issues a lot of the stands that are out there for universal robots they're um in my opinion they're a little bit light and so unless you have them like secured to the floor or maybe bolted to your machine, like, you know, the robot's going to move around a little bit and it might just drift enough, enough that all of a sudden, you know, op one device is in a different spot relative to where the robot thinks it is because the robots moved and now, you know, it's just not loading op one. Um, th those types of things are, it's more the basic things that I see, not so much the, uh, really complicated things because those challenges usually get worked through 
during the initial integration. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, it sounds like that. I mean, while those are like the nitty gritty, that's like what is the difference between a successful and a a not successful integration. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's totally those things, and um, honestly, from an integrator perspective, like um, it, it's it's kind of like the it's it's I don't know. So I tell the story. I was at home on the weekend, right, and the the robot was down here running, and this was a while ago. Um, and the robot was running, and all of a sudden, like, so I have a webcam, so I can call it and like you know check on the machine and make sure everything's still running. So I call the robot and the webcam pops up and it, it, it's dark out because it's, you know, like 11 o'clock or something. And I just see, all I see are, is like this little glow of light by the machine oh, and then shit. tons of smoke. Like there's just smoke everywhere. And I'm like, oh man, like this is really bad, right? So I'm like, oh, like do I call the fire department? Um, like. What do I do? So I call back again. I'm like, maybe it's just something with the camera, right? It's kind of dark out. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, I don't really see like anything changing. It just looks really smoky. So maybe I blew an airline and I have like, you know, air airline oil kind of everywhere. So anyhow, I, I fly down to the shop because I can get there pretty quick. And uh, I get there and go in and everything's fine, right? Well, it was just a drop of like coolant that got on the lens of the camera. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea how that made it look like smoke, but it did, right? And so it's it's those types of things. And that's kind of a funny story about the camera, right? But you'll get the same thing if you're using like a wrist camera or something. Um, you're not guaranteed to get it, but you can get it, right? And then it's just like a chip goes in the wrong place and now your vacuum uh, suction cup won't seal or, you know, who knows what. The part still has coolant on it. So, you know, the gripper lets it slide a little bit. Um, so it's it's more like the little random um, kind of weird things that tend to pop up that you just have to, you just have to run it, find those things. You can't always predict them. And then you just have to, you know, come up with an approach to, fix that as you find that problem yeah yeah that makes total sense so let's see we have another question that let's see let's do this one what robots have you worked with i know universal being one of the major ones and then your epson but which one out of all of them that you've worked with is your favorite um that is definitely going to be the ur5 uh the ur5e and, um, well, I guess I'll just go with the Universal Robots E-Series. Um, I like the 5E because it happens to be a really good size for a lot of the types of machine tending things that we work on. Um, but the 10 is probably the most popular for CNC because it has more reach and all that. But in any case, I really like those because the programming interface is awesome. You can free drive them. Uh, you can use the force uh, torque sensors to basically wiggle parts into like a really tight, you know, machining fixture that might even be timed with some pins and that type of thing. And the ease of programming to do that is just phenomenal. Um, 
So yeah, I would definitely have to go with the, the universal E-series on that. And as far as industrials go, um, Epson's my favorite with that, but really that's just because I know them pretty well. And they're really good too, um, but it's definitely not something in the same class for the types of you know job shop automation. It's, it's a little more intensive to program. And then there, of course, there's the safety considerations and being able to free drive the robot is huge. If you're trying to like, you know, teach the robot, you know, the location of your vice, your op one vice, um, you just push a button, you grab the robot head, you move it there. You don't have to think about like driving the robot in, you know, six axes with, you know, a joystick or buttons or that type of thing. So it makes it just really natural to use and program. And uh, that, that is what I really like about those ones. That makes total sense. So, go for it. Oh, go ahead, Dylan. I was going to say, so on your Epson, you actually have to tell it each axis, each rotary axis, all of that, and, and give it yeah. waypoints, I guess. Yeah, so it does use waypoints um, very much in the same way as a universal does. But I think the difference is just that you have to use the teach pendant to drive it there. And that's not to say that you have to tell each axis, um, each joint, you know, okay, rotate joint one by 30 degrees, et cetera. You can move in Cartesian uh, coordinate space as well, just like you can with the UR but you have to use the pendant to drive it there. Um, and so just getting your wrist flipped around to the right point and getting it in there is definitely, uh, it just takes a lot longer. So you really, with that one, especially when it's in the machine, it's like, man, you got to get in there with the pendant and you almost want to like get inside the mill and like stand on the table. <laughs> um, so so you can actually see what's going on, right? And our mill is not really big enough to do that easily. So um, when we were first setting it up, we had kind of this situation where you got me like inside the machine with, you know, oil and chips and everything all over me. And I'm just crouched over the table, like really trying to drive it to that precise um, point because it, it is. And I think the same way I do when I'm, you know, picking up work offsets, uh, for a CNC, like, I'm like, hey, I want this load point within a thousandth, you know, and just driving it there by eyeball with the pendant, it's a little hard to do that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of been huge with uh, the URs is the ability to do that. Yeah, it definitely seems like that market is only expanding. I've seen Doosan and I think one other company that now have cobots that look awfully similar to the UR. Yeah, definitely. I had a chance to um, check out the Doosons at the Automate show a little bit, and I wasn't actually able to drive one of those, but it would be cool to try one out at some point for sure. Yeah, I'm sure that they'll only be more and more uh, prevalent as they you know come out more, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think that the... Um, for us recently, the differentiator um, with the E-Series has been the integrated force torque sensor and then the extra precision that you get. Um, I think the 5E is down to like 30 microns. So that's like a thousand two tenths repeatability. Um, wow, that's crazy. Is, yeah, it's impressive. 
Um, typically, the collaborative robot standard was 100 microns, so uh, four thousandths. And basically, when, with the E-series coming out, that just went way down, which is, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, I had a chance to play around with one, and I was really impressed. Um, one day, when I get there, I'd love to, you know, get one in, in our shop if, if, you know, the parts make sense for it. Yeah, totally. Well, I think the uh, last question we have here um, is what do you see as the kind of the future for small job shops or large job shops? You know, what, what do you see cobots being more and more popular and being easier and easier to integrate? Or uh, what do you think moving forward is going to be the standard? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're really just getting started with that whole uh, cobots and job shop uh, market. And I think up until this point, um, there have been a lot of shops automated with six axis robots, but they tend to be the bigger like automotive type shops, um, a lot of them in the Midwest. And when they automate, they're like buying a machining center and a robot um, at the same time that are, you know, spec to operate together. And it's going to be a really expensive, high performance cell that just runs on its own for, you know, a year and a half straight, right? Um, so that's kind of, I think that's been the, the typical automation uh, project or process for machining up until recently. But I think with cobots, what they're doing is they're definitely not as fast as these large industrials, but the safety factor of them is just making them totally accessible to smaller job shops. So I think the, the, the future that I, where I really see a lot of interest is with, uh, you know, I wouldn't say one or two man shops, although there are quite a few of those. I just visited one the other day that had a, had a new UR and uh, I think he had three mills, one lathe and a UR robot and it's one guy and he's running them all and, you know, making phenomenal parts. Um, so I think that, I see a ton of value for those types of smaller shops where you got someone who's really good at running, setting up, running different machines, but he's just running out of time. He's like, man, I could totally hire like a night shift operator and that would be really helpful. Or I could just learn a little bit more and hire a robot to run my machines lights out. And so and I think that the, the cobots, along with the ecosystem um, that goes with them, especially with the UR Plus uh, and UR Cap products that basically integrate um, really easily with the robots, I think what you're going to see is just tons of new ideas and methods and probably some standardization on how you take a, you know, a vertical machining center, a six-axis cobot, and how do you get those to work together efficiently um, on short run, you know, high mix, low volume type of stuff and even medium volume, right? Because, of course, there's a lot of shops who do, you know, thousand part runs. And um, for me, most of those are a no brainer. 
But I, I think it's just really increasing the capability of smaller shops. Um, that's what the cobots do. And of course, big shops can get the same benefit from them, but sometimes it doesn't pencil quite as quickly if they have, uh, you know, already have like three shifts and maybe some operators on night shift to, you know, can keep all the machines running. It doesn't always pencil as quickly that way, other than, you know, the robots tend to be more consistent. Uh, but I, I think all the growth really is going to be in these uh, smaller job shops. And those are the ones that we're excited about working with um, because th that's what we are and uh, we understand it. And it, it's just really fun and cool to see all the, all the new stuff people are trying. Awesome. Um, well, I guess, do you have anything else you wanted to, you know, talk to our audience about kind of signing off and then uh, anything that, you know, that, they should know about automation or rapid design solutions or anything like that? Yeah. So uh, check out our website, rapiddesignsolutions.com. And then of course you can follow us on Instagram as well. And uh, really just if we have our uh, CNC vice actuator product, which we've kind of gone in depth on, we have our mobile robot stand, which is super heavy duty, uh, precise, specifically for CNC's. Uh, when we bring it back in front of our machine tool, uh, we have low profile floor plates, so we're not picking up points again, it relocates. Um, that's really cool. And then we have the really simple stock feeder sheet, which helps. So if you have any questions about those products or actually just general integration, um, I really like talking to people who run CNC's and are interested in automating. Um, frankly, even if they're not, uh, you know, looking to use us as an integrator. I just like talking CNC. So if there's anything we can help out with, uh, just feel free to reach out to us on through our website or by phone or whatever. Um, we'd be excited to talk to you. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much, Troy, for coming on the podcast and, you know, talking to us about automation and job shop life. We really appreciate it and learned a lot, I'm sure. I know I did. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Dylan, and thank you, Peyton. I, I appreciate the opportunity, uh, and keep keep up the good work. I, I really like the Within Tolerance podcast. We appreciate yeah. it. Well, thank you, Troy, and we will see you guys next week with episode 25 of Within Tolerance.